0: Well, good morning, everybody. Today we are starting a new sermon series all about the book of Jonah, and I would venture to guess that even if you're not super familiar with the book, you probably have at least some idea of one element of what makes Jonah, Jonah. So let's do a little bit of word association and see if you're thinking what I'm thinking. Ready? All right. uh, Say it with me. Jonah and the xenophobic (laughs) nationalism. Oh, you said whale. No, you're right. Yes, that is... People do think of Jonah as a story about a a giant whale. It's actually a giant fish, but we're not going to get into that uh, today, And, and the reason is because that's actually not what the book of Jonah is really focused on at all. Yes, there's a giant fish, it plays a part, but the book of Jonah is actually, maybe this is surprising to you, it's got a lot more to do with an Israelite prophet's hatred towards an enemy nation, and his... How he wrestles quite poorly, I might add, how he wrestles with God's inexplicable grace to that nation. That's why I called it xenophobic nationalism. We'll get into that in a few weeks. The book, it also has to do with calling. It also has to do with resurrection and new life. It's got a lot to say to us today, today. <clears throat> and yes, there's a giant fish, okay? So regardless of, of how familiar we are with the book, I think this book has got a lot to say, and we are going to listen So go ahead and grab a Bible, and uh, please turn with me to Jonah chapter 1, page 763 in the house Bibles in the seats in front of you. And uh, while you're turning there, I'm going to pray for us, and then I'll describe a little bit about how we're going to approach this book. Let's pray. Well, Father God... Thank you for bringing us here this morning. Thank you for uh, speaking to us. Thank you for, for your uh, ongoing revelation of who you are and who you would see us to be uh, in your love. So, Father, as we turn to this book of Jonah, I ask that you would prepare our hearts <clears throat> to, to hear what you have to say to us today. I pray that your Holy Spirit will speak and that we will have hearts that listen I pray in these moments that I would just disappear and that your Holy Spirit would remain. And I pray that we would leave this place, un, that we would be changed uh, because of what you've revealed to us. I pray all these things in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Okay, so here's how we're going to approach Jonah. It's important, I think, to start talking about Jonah by talking about genre, Genre, uh, you know, like literary genres, poetry or fiction or mystery or thriller. like that. Those are, those are genres of literature. What is the genre of Jonah? When you read the book and you, you kind of compare it to other books in the Bible, it's natural, perhaps, to think about it as some kind of uh, history book, right? Like it's just a bunch of facts about some things that happened a long time ago that, that got, you know, passed down to us. But I would argue that history is not, in fact, the genre of Jonah. That's not the genre of Jonah. I believe, and there's, I think, really good reason to to believe this, I believe the genre of the book of Jonah is actually a parable. A parable. Parables, as you might know, parables are stories designed to illustrate a deeper truth or a moral lesson. Jesus taught in parables all the time, right? The parable of the good Samaritan, the parable of the the lost son. Jonah, again, I believe this, but Jonah is a parable like those. It is a story that is is crafted and designed in such a way that we would meditate on it, that we would chew on it, think about it, talk about it. We are meant to ponder the deeper truths within it. It's meant to be a a chin-scratcher, the hmm, what is this trying to say? Now, to be clear, I know some of you are like, whoa, red flag. Hold on a second, Barry. When I say that it's a parable, I'm not saying that the events that take place in Jonah are necessarily fictional. I'm not saying that they, they, they didn't happen. Um, that's possible, but that's not what I'm necessarily saying. Bible scholars debate this all the time. You see, some Bible scholars say, no, it has to be real. This has to have happened because Jonah, son of Amittai, was a real person. You can read about him in other parts of the Old Testament. So, so this must be real. Well, one verse in the Old Testament. So he mu- it must be real. But then there's others who say, yeah, but look at how the story is written. I mean, it's full of exaggerated behavior and inappropriate actions and outlandish situations and ludicrous commands. It doesn't even like have an ending. It lives on on this weird cliffhanger, just like some of the parables of Jesus. So it reads like a story that's designed to get our attention and to get us thinking. Again, like the parables that Jesus told. So did it really happen? Did it not happen? For our purposes, I don't think it matters. I don't think it matters. I mean, it's like asking, was there really a good Samaritan? It's not the point of the story, right? The point of the story is it's a parable. It's here for us to to understand what we're thinking. So in this series… We're not going to get into long discussions about Mediterranean marine biology. We are not going to be talking about the historicity of Nineveh's repentance, if that's something that geeks, you know, you're geeking out about. Someone's excited <laughs> that we're not talking about the historicity of Nineveh's repentance. Yeah, amen to that. Um, we're simply going to take the story at face value and ask, what does the author of Jonah want us to hear? Or maybe more importantly, what is God trying to say to you, and to me about our lives today in 2022. All right? So how's God speaking? Let's begin where all good stories begin at the beginning and look at Jonah chapter 1, the first few verses. The Lord gave this message to Jonah, son of Amittai. Get up and go to the great city of Nineveh. Announce my judgment against it, because I have seen how wicked its people are. But Jonah got up and went in the opposite direction to get away from the Lord. He went down to the port of Joppa where he found a ship leaving for Tarshish. And he, brought t- he bought a ticket and he went on board hoping to escape from the Lord by sailing to Tarshish. Okay, so right out of the gate, one of the first things you notice is that Jonah is not exactly the hero of this story. He's kind of more like an anti-hero, or maybe even the villain of this story. And I mean, even just these first few verses, think about it. Jonah is a prophet of God. This is a, a high calling, right? He's a prophet of God. And as we're going to see in a couple weeks, he's actually a really effective prophet. When he tells Nineveh uh, that, that God's going to judge them if they don't turn, their, turn around, they change their ways. Like, that's more than a lot of the prophets in the Bible can say. A lot of times they just get ignored. So he's an actually effective prophet being used by God. And yet, and yet, throughout the entire story, Jonah behaves exactly the opposite of how a good prophet should. I mean, he gets angry at God for showing mercy to the Ninevites. He he blames God when things don't go his way. And as we just read, when God gives him a job to do, Jonah flees in the other direction. The Lord gave this message to Jonah, but Jonah got up and he went in the opposite direction. So that's not exactly the right behavior of a prophet. Compare that to some of the other prophets that we read about in the Old Testament, how they responded when they were called by God. Like, like Elijah. Then the Lord said to Elijah, Go and live in the village of Zarephath near the city of Sidon. I have instructed a widow there to feed you. So he went to Zarephath. There it is. Or how about Isaiah? Then I heard, Isaiah speaking here, then I heard the Lord asking, whom should I send as a messenger to this people? Who will go for us? And I said, here I am, send me. Here I am, send me. So compared to how prophets usually act when God calls them, Jonah is not exactly a role model. He flees. He flees. Now at this point, it's probably worth asking, Why? Why does he run away? Why does Jonah choose to flee? Why not go to Nineveh? Well, two big reasons. The first big reason has to do with something that we're going to talk about later in this series, but essentially Jonah doesn't want Nineveh to hear about God's judgment. He doesn't want to hear it, want them to hear it because he knows that they might actually repent. They might actually change their ways and be spared from God's judgment. He doesn't want God to have compassion on them. He wants them to burn. He wants them to burn. So he doesn't want to go. That's, that's reason number one. But there's a, another, probably more obvious reason why Jonah doesn't want to go to Nineveh. And it's this. Fear. 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 Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. Assyria was one of the great empires of the ancient world. I mean, they were the big bad guys for a long time. And when you look at the the Old Testament, what you see is that Assyria was like the, they're like the, the chief bad guys for the Israelites many, many, many times. They were always sort of looming in the north. They were always kind of like invading. There was a time when they they came all the way up to the the gates of Jerusalem in an invasion. So the Assyrians are like the chief bad guys for the Israelites. And I'll be honest, the Assyrians had some pretty nasty propaganda that they would share everywhere they went. They would literally carve their propaganda into mountainsides and make these huge uh, you know, carvings that would show what they would do to their enemies. And I mean, it was like twisted stuff. Literally, they would, they would depict uh, any prisoners that they captured. They'd rip out their tongues, and they'd, they'd like, flay them alive, or they'd do like, messed up stuff. Like They would force men to, to grind up the bones of their own father. Like, who, even co- who even comes up with that kind of thing? That's so messed up. So that's the Assyrian reputation in the ancient world, right? They're just the, these twisted, powerful, evil, bleh, whatever, people— If you were in that position, if I was in that position, we would probably also be a little bit scared, okay? So you can't really blame Jonah for feeling a level of fear, all right? That's that's what he's facing. God calls him to go to Nineveh, and for one of those two reasons, or both of them, he says, peace. No, thanks. I'm gone. See ya. I'm gone. book's passage on a ship heads to Tarshish. And we don't know exactly where Tarshish is, but from all accounts, Tarshish was essentially as far as you could possibly get. It was like the ends of the earth for, for you know, maybe it was on, in the coast of Spain or something. It was basically the end of the world. That's where he goes, as far as he could possibly get. So, okay, a lot of context there. File that all away. Let's keep reading and uh, see if we can find out more about what the author's trying to say to us. Verse 4. So he's on this boat, fleeing from the Lord, But the Lord hurled a powerful wind over the sea, causing a violent storm that threatened to break the ship apart. Fearing for their lives, the desperate sailors shouted to their gods for help and threw the cargo overboard to lighten the ship. But all this time, Jonah was sound asleep down in the hold. So the captain went down after him. How can you sleep at a time like this? He shouted. Get up and pray to your God. Maybe he will pay attention to us and spare our lives. Then the crew cast lots to see which of them had offended the gods and caused the terrible storm. And when they did this, the lots identified Jonah as the culprit. Why has this awful storm come down on us, they demanded. Who are you? What is your line of work? What country are you from? What's your nationality? And Jonah answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. All right, so here in verse 9, Here in verse 9, we get another revelation about Jonah. Turns out, he knows that God made the sea and the land. He knows that. So what is he doing thinking that he can get away from the creator of everything, right? What's what's going through his mind? He would have known this, as as Psalm 139 says. Where can I go? I I can never escape from your spirit. I can never get away from your presence. If I ride on the wings of the morning, if I dwell by the furthest oceans, even there your hand will guide me and your strength will support me. This is like basic understanding for an Israelite. The idea of God as the creator of everything, that's like religion 101 if you were an a, a Israelite, okay? Religion 101. But Jonah's going around pretending like it's not true. Yet again, yet again, Jonah is being depicted as a pretty miserable excuse for a servant of God. He's an anti-hero in this parable. He's not a role model. You know what he is? He's a cautionary tale. It's a cautionary tale. And oh, come on. How about the fact that he is fast asleep down in the hold while this, the sailors are like fighting for their lives and chucking stuff overboard. And he's just like, oh, I'm just going to take a little snooze. Like, come on, Jonah, stay classy, man. Like that, help out, pick up a bucket or something. I don't know. All right, let's keep reading. Let's keep reading. See if he does pick up a bucket. He does not. All right, verse 10. The sailors were terrified when they heard this, for they had already told him, or he had already told them that he was running away from the Lord. Oh, why did you do it? They groaned. And since the storm was getting worse all the time, they asked him, what should we do to you to stop this storm? Throw me into the sea, Jonah said, and it will become calm again. I know that this terrible storm is all my fault. Instead, the sailors rowed even harder to get the ship to the land, but the stormy sea was too violent for them and they couldn't make it. Then they cried out to the Lord, Jonah's God. O Lord, they pleaded, don't make us die for this man's sin and don't hold us responsible for his death. O Lord, you have sent this storm upon him for your own good reasons. Then the sailors picked Jonah up and threw him into the raging sea and the storm stopped at once. The sailors were awestruck by the Lord's great power and they offered him a sacrifice and vowed to serve him. Now the Lord had arranged for a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was inside the fish for three days and three nights. All right, we're going to stop there for today, chapter one. There's a lot that we could dig into with what we just read, but there's one thing that I want to point out, one main idea. And again, it has to do with with the purpose of a story like this. If you were an ancient Israelite— you would, have, you would have some things kind of conditioned into your way of seeing the world, right? There's some things that, things that you think just because of how you were raised. It's part of your culture. We all have the same thing. As an ancient Israelite, you would have expected two things. One, a prophet of God is going to be the hero of the story that you're reading because the prophets were, were called by God. They're, they're good guys. They're heroes, right? That's one expectation. The other one, is that when you come across Gentiles, like these sailors, you would have thought of them as like, like these, these heathen dogs, the bad guys, right? They're the ones that are always making the world such a terrible place. But what did we just read? We just see that the author of Jonah is completely upending those expectations. It's the prophet of God, the hero, quote-unquote, who refuses to obey And it's the heathen sailors who end up actually worshiping God. They are the ones who, in verse 16, they sacrifice to him. They vow to serve him. Think about that. It's a complete inversion of our expectations. It's classic parable material. And yet again, we are meant to meditate on this. We're meant to to chew on this and to to think about this. And and what we just read is actually the author planting a seed that he's going to harvest later. We're supposed to read that and think, huh. It's the Gentiles who turn to God. Hmm. Chin scratcher, right? It's parable. It's a parable. So Now there's a lot more to the story to uncover. Next week we'll talk about Jonah down inside the belly of the fish. We'll talk all about that. But, but I think we, what we have here is something worth, worth chewing on a little bit together. I want us to stop and, and ask this question. What are we supposed to take away from chapter one of Jonah? Is there something here That can apply to our lives? What do we do with this this anti-hero of a prophet? What's the message for your life, for my life? Well, I suppose someone might read this story and think, oh, I know. I get it. Uh, If you disobey God, he's going to blast you with a thunderstorm, right? That might be the the takeaway, that he's just going to get you. But I don't think that's it. I don't think that's quite it now yes in the ancient world the ancient understanding of how the world works i mean there's some pretty fundamental truths if you disobey the gods they're going to punish you. That's just how it works. You disobey the gods, you're going to get punished. And so in the ancient narrative logic of the story, yes, Jonah deserved to die for not following his God's call. That's what any ancient reader would expect. Yeah, Jonah, you brought this storm on yourself. You're going to die. You shouldn't have done it, right? That's why they ask him, what what did you do to, to deserve this? But that's not what happens, is it? Like, he doesn't ultimately die, does he? God does not end the story with judgment and condemnation on Jonah. He doesn't kill him. Instead, no, what does he do? He shows grace. When Jonah is tossed into the sea, which everyone knows meant certain death, the death that he deserved, God provides a giant fish and he restores Jonah to life. The Same thing is true about the city of Nineveh a couple chapters later. This great, evil, twisted, messed up empire. They deserve to be wiped off the face of the planet. But when they repent, what does God do? He spares them. He rescues them from certain death. You see, this story is not about the wrath and the judgment of God. It's about mercy and compassion and grace. It's not about the thunderstorm. It's about the giant fish even though I said it wasn't. (laughs) and This, I think, this is where I think it all comes back to us. This is where we enter into the story because we, you and me, we serve a God who revealed himself in Jesus Christ. And Jesus, the perfect revelation of God. We look at Jesus, we're seeing the Father. He showed us the character of God as as a God of love and grace and self-sacrifice and compassion. And we need all of that, don't we? Because just like Jonah, in our selfishness and in our sin, we have fled from God's intentions for the world. We've, we've fled from his good intentions. We've broken this good creation. We've broken the world. And we have, through that rebellion, we have all earned for ourselves a watery grave. But just like Jonah, we too have been rescued from death because of the grace of God. But that's not all that God's grace accomplished for Jonah or or for us. And that's not all that we have in common with him. Because just like we talked about all this last month in Hope Month, we, like Jonah, are called. We're called by God to be his, his messengers in this broken world. Despite our flaws, despite our rebellion, he's sending us. Now, we may not be called to preach to the mighty empire of Assyria, but I believe every single one of us has our own form of Nineveh to go to. We are called to our own Ninevehs. Maybe your Nineveh is, is injustice in this world, or, or a specific injustice that God is calling you to, to make right. Or maybe it's the, the hatred that people feel towards one another right now. Maybe that's your Nineveh. Maybe it's pain. Uh, mental pain, emotional pain, physical pain. Maybe it's people's isolation. That's your Nineveh that you're called to go to. Is your Nineveh the decay of this creation itself, of the planet? Or maybe, maybe your Nineveh is the credibility gap itself, the very thing that's keeping people from coming back to God. You get what I'm describing here, right? These are the six broken places. We talk about it at Grace all the time because we believe that every single person, every single one of you and me included, we all have a reason that we are here. We have been called by God to participate in healing those broken places. Every one of us has a destiny to be God's instruments. Even if the, the, the things that we are called to heal seem like insurmountable empires to us. The problem is, Sometimes these, these callings are terrifying, right? I mean, giving your life to healing injustice, that, that's, a, that's a call that can be pretty scary, because what's it going to take? It's probably going to mean that you're going to give up some of your comfort. You're going to give up some of your money. You're going to give up your time, your safety. Like, those are the things that are involved. And I'm speaking from experience here, because there was a time in 2007 where I felt deeply called by God to do something about the injustice in our world that was my calling and I was freaked out about it I will never forget there was a moment where I was weeping uncontrollably looking at myself in the mirror and wrestling with what do I say to this call because I was terrified it was gonna cost me my time and my energy and my money and and who knows my relationships was I willing to say yes to that call and you know what I wasn't wrong to be afraid I, w- I wasn't wrong to be afraid. There was genuine fear there for, for good reason. I spent the next eight years of my life, I did say yes to that call after saying no many times before. I finally said yes. And I spent the next eight years of my life living in slums and refugee camps and mountain villages. And I lived homeless in New York City for four days. I mean, I did all of that. And guess what happened to me? I, I got lost several times. I got sick. I got robbed. Uh, I sweat a lot. It was very uncomfortable, and I didn't like it. I didn't like it. I got bit by mosquitoes, and I hate it. It was was a deeply fear-inducing calling, and yet I said yes to it. So I have some experience here of of what it's like ignoring and then finally saying yes to a call that that takes us into some uncharted, fearful territory. Sometimes God's call on our life is scary— And maybe, maybe most of the time it is because it's always calling us beyond ourselves, out of our comfort zones. This is what the first chapter of Jonah has got me thinking about. That's what I've been chewing on and chin scratching over. If God is calling us to be his messengers, his instruments of healing in this broken, messed up, scary world, I think this has got me asking, how are we going to respond to that call? What's our response? What's our our posture when God calls us? Do you say yes to that? Do you go? Do you obey that call? Or do you turn tail and run to Tarshish? I mean, they've got great beaches, I'm sure. I'm sure you'll be really comfortable there. What's your answer? What is your posture towards God's call on your life? Are you willing to go where God sends you, wherever that might be? Or are you running the other way? Are you like Jonah who fled from the presence of the Lord? Or are you like that prophet Isaiah who when he was called, he said, Here I am. Send me. Here I am. Send me. At the end of the day, the grace of God brought Jonah back to his call. He brought me back to my call after I ignored it for so long. And I believe he'll do the same for you. If you've been saying no, he'll bring you back. But what if When he calls, you didn't have to go through the belly of a fish first. What is your posture to the call of God? I want to tell you about a friend of mine. Someone in my life who has absolutely answered the call of God and continues to answer the call of God on her life, despite plenty of reasons not to. Plenty of reasons not to. I'm talking about my dear friend, Ira Venglovska, who's the director of our partner ministry, Mission to Ukraine. Uh, we have got a few photos here. If you look uh, at this first photo, which will be up in a second, Ira is in the floral print in the middle just to the right of, uh, of the guy in the black shirt. Okay, Ira. 25 years ago, Ira felt God calling her to dedicate her life to serving marginalized people in Ukraine. Women facing crisis pregnancies, uh, children with special needs, with disabilities. Ira knew from the beginning that it was going to cost her an awful lot to say yes to that call. It would cost her economic security, it would threaten her reputation, it would lead to many years bearing the weight of her culture's brokenness while wading into some really dark places. Nevertheless, when she felt God's call, her response was, here I am, send me. And because of her faithfulness, God has grown Mission to Ukraine into a powerful and culture-shaping ministry. They brought care and compassion to thousands of families in Jatomar, and they have become leaders in disability care across their entire nation. But then came the Russian invasion of Ukraine this past February. You've seen a few, few photos of that here. All of a sudden, as Russia is invading, God's call on Ira's life involved way more than just the challenges I already mentioned. Now it involved leading a nonprofit through a time of war. It involved the very real prospect of facing violence or even death. So what did Ira say to God when Russian missiles were striking literally right down the street from Mission to Ukraine's headquarters? She said what she always says. Here I am. Send me. Mission to Ukraine kept their doors open. And they have not stopped serving families in need at any point through this war. There's a running joke among the staff at Mission to Ukraine that at Mission to Ukraine, there is no war. Because there might as well not be because they've stayed so faithful to continuing to serve those that they have been called to serve. They refuse to compromise the mission that God has put them on earth to do. You know what they're raising money for right now? A bomb shelter. You know why? Why? because they're in the process of building a new facility. They were doing this right before the war, and now they realize that if they're going to be serving their families in a time when nuclear war is a possibility in their, in their town, then they are going to build a bomb shelter so they can continue serving those families, even at the face of total annihilation. That is what they are facing, and that is what they are willing to do. My goodness, guys. That is courage. That is obedience to the call. If Jonah is an anti-hero— When it comes to the call of God on his life, then, you know, tucking tail and running, then Ira is undoubtedly a hero. One of my greatest heroes of the faith. She is a living example of what it means to say yes when God calls. Guys, I've got a really cool surprise for you. Ira's here today. (laughs) She's with us in the room. Ira, would you come up on stage? I forgot to mention, I, she did ask that there would be no applause. So just, if you could go back and just not do that, no. She's so humble. She didn't want — she's very uncomfortable right now and doesn't like the, uh, the recognition, but you're a, yeah. You've earned every single bit of applause from all of us. We are very grateful for you and very proud of you. Uh, Ira, thank you for being with us today. Uh, Mission to Ukraine just had their 25th anniversary celebration. That's why she's here in the U.S. But when do you head back? Uh,
1: uh, we're heading back tomorrow to go to Virginia. And four days later, we're going home.
0: Going back to Ukraine, thank yeah. You. So Ira, I would love for you to share a bit with us about what, how do you think about God's call on your life? How, how have you thought about what that call was and also maybe what, how you see that call now?
1: Good morning, Grace Church, and thank you, Barry, for letting me come here and share a little bit. Um, when I became a Christian in mid-'90s, God gave me a dream to um, commit my life to a ministry. And I didn't know what a ministry is. There were no ministries in Ukraine at that time. And when the Lord gave us an opportunity to come and help in a very, very dark place, an opportunity to save lives and bring God's light, We knew, I knew exactly, that's it. That was God's call. And now, 25 years later, we've gone through many difficult times. But I can tell you that when you are in the center of God's will, this is the best place to be. Right now, during the war, our staff, our whole staff, it's in Zhutomir, Ukraine, and God is giving us peace. We know we are where we need to be, and we are doing what God needs us to do.
0: Hmm. I imagine although I probably can't even imagine that there's a lot of fear that you have to face on a daily basis. Fear of, of I mean, when the invasion was happening, there were fear, fear of, of missile attacks, fear of death, fear of, of what will happen to the, to the men in your city who are being sent off to war. Fear is, is, has got to be a normal part of it. How are you feeling about the fear that you're facing and how are you processing what you're experiencing?
1: We As the full invasion uh, started on September 24th of this year, um, the whole country was in complete shock because none of us believed that it's actually possible in the 21st century. A huge country attacking a little tiny country that has no weapon, no army, no ability to protect ourselves, and they just move in. And they don't just move in to fight our army. They focus and concentrate on torturing and killing civilians. And when something this massive comes at you, you know no human action can do anything. You completely depend on God. And more so, we knew there are 600 families with very sick children who are not able to evacuate, and they completely depend on us to give them food, to give them medicines, and to bring the word of comfort and the word of hope. And so we didn't really have time to think much, to process much. There are families, there are kids who are scared, who are praying in their basements, and we are there to come help them. And actually, even right now, as I'm talking, there is an air raid siren for the whole country, and that means uh, Russia is sending bombs and missiles, and we don't know where they're going to land. Mm. And at this time, we know we are there to pray, to comfort, and to do what God has us to do.
0: Wow. You are very much acting as Jesus himself, to that community. You're the light, you're the salt. It's incredible, yeah. Ira, how can we pray for you? Obviously, there's probably the obvious things for safety, for security, but what, how can we pray for you? How can we pray for mission to Ukraine and for Ukraine as a whole?
1: We want to do, to the very end, we don't know what God has for us. We know he has a plan. We don't understand it right now. But we know that he has a very, very important role for us. And now is the time when his light would shine the brightest. So pray for the strengths, for the church, for the body of Christ in Ukraine, for mission to Ukraine, to go, to stay, to serve. But the situation is terrible. And so our biggest prayer right now is for the Lord to stop this, to bring this to the end, to give us victory, so that our country could heal and rebuild. Hmm
0: well, we're going to do something a little different. Normally, this would be the point where I would pray for Ira on behalf of us, but before I do that, Ira, would you be willing to pray however God leads you to pray for Ukraine, for Mission to Ukraine, and we'll pray along with you in support, and then I'll
1: pray for you. Yes, okay, let's pray. Our big, almighty, all-omnipresent, almighty, all-merciful, good, kind, merciful God, we come to you as your body, as your children, not understanding, Father, what you are doing right now in Ukraine. But we know you are there. We see your hand. You have brought us to the day like this, and we're still here. And Father, at this time, I ask you to unveil your plan. I ask you to move mightily, and not just to save, Father, physically, even right now, as missiles are flying over our whole country, but we're asking you, Lord, to shine your light so brightly that when you give us victory, Lord, the whole world will know it's you. They will recognize your hand. They will recognize your mercy so that your name could be praised mightily in our country and in the whole world. Lord, I thank you for this church. I thank you for this body of Christ. They are 5,000 miles away, but they care and they love and they pray. And I ask you to bless them, Father, and multiply your grace upon them. We trust you, Lord. We trust you, our lives and our future. And we ask for your protection and for your will. In Jesus' name, amen.
0: And Father, on behalf of this whole community, I want to pray for Ira for Mission to Ukraine, and ask, Father, for your hand of mercy and strength to be on them. I pray as they face the unknown future they're, they're facing, that you will fill them with light, that you'll fill them with hope. Let them be the salt and the light. Of the earth that they would be shining beacons of your love and of your grace even in this terrible time i pray specifically for the families that are being served by mission to ukraine that they would experience uh, your your holy spirit's presence close and and dear to them father in this dark time and i pray father that for all of those who are working to make mission to, to ukraine possible i pray that you would give them strength and you would give them courage and for Ira specifically, Father, you have called her to this great task of leading Mission to Ukraine through such a challenging time. I pray that you would, you would uplift her on the, the, the dark days where it seems like there is no hope. Would you rush in with your Holy Spirit and give her a fresh wind of hope? And Father, would you give her just that unique supernatural mix of strength and, and compassion. Would you allow her to be strong and faithful, yet loving and tender at the same time? Let her be the leader that you have called her to be in this time, more than any other. Father, would you walk with her? Would you give her your strength? Would you give her your presence? I pray all these things. We pray them together, agreeing as one church to another. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you here.
1: Thanks for watching, but don't stop there. We
0: want you to find community at Grace Church. And the first step in doing that is going to gracechurch.us/pub. There you'll find other sermons, details about upcoming events and other important
1: announcements. And make sure you subscribe to our channel so you don't miss out when we post something new. Thanks again for watching. We'll see you next time.